Welcome to Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, and Liven Powers from Ghent University, Belgium. We aim to draw a map of the state of criminology across Europe through the words of contemporary criminologists. How is criminology defined and taught? Which are the main lines of research? Which are the main schools of thought in each country? These and many other questions are answered here by fellow researchers who share their vision on the development of criminology in their countries from its beginnings to the second decade of the 21st century. If you want to know and compare their stories, stay tuned. Today we are interviewing Professor Per-Olof Wikström. Per-Olof Wikström is Professor of Ecological and Developmental Criminology at the Institute of Criminology, University of Cambridge. He is the Director of the Center for Analytic Criminology. This interview was conducted on 20 May 2022. We are um, interviewing Professor Pio Wickström, uh, Cambridge University, Professor of Ecological and Developmental Criminology at the Institute of Criminology. Uh, he is the director of the Center for Analytic Criminology and uh, is probably known very good as the principal investigator of the PETS Plus study, a longitudinal study, which is um, basically used to test criminological theories and especially situational action theory. So uh, we welcome you, uh, mm-hmm. Professor Wickström. Um, we would like to uh, start this podcast by asking you to try to define criminology in your own words um, as it exists in uh, the country you work or the countries you have been working in, in your case, that may be the UK and or Sweden, of course. Okay, well, I, I think when you define criminology, I, I always thought that it's actually two main strands. You have criminology as interested in the causes of crimes and so on, and then you have criminal justice, which um, is um, perhaps the dominating form. People are interested in prisons, uh, criminal justice systems and so on. <clears throat> and these, these are quite uh, divided um, in a sense. And I think I think it's fair to say that criminology both in the UK and in Sweden is actually dominated of criminal justice studies. The interest for what, what to say fundamental research and about the basic causes of crimes and so on is is um, less prevalent um, in the sense. Um, and one reason for that might be that it's much easier to get funding to do uh, uh, studies of if you if you want to study prison, you want to study police and so on. The, than if you want to uh, do that, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. So uh, obviously criminology has to do with is an applied science, which makes it also a bit more tricky because it's defined from the outcome we study. So there are, um, I mean, if, if you think that people who actually work in criminology, that, that there's one group, but there's a lot of people who 
economists, psychologists and so on who do studies in, in uh, criminology. So I guess when we talk about interest in causation and so on, it might actually be greater in other areas like sociology and psychology um, and so on. So, um, for instance, if I take one example in Sweden, the, uh, the University of Örebro has been running a lot of studies on that for a long time, um, where they have been sort of interested in uh, what they call an antisocial behavior and crime and so on. And obviously also in the UK, I mean, you can think about, let's say, Moffitt study, um, the e-risk study, which also is um, the Michael Rutter, there's a lot of people. So criminology is, is hard to define uh, as a distinct discipline. It's, it's As I said, it's mostly defined by an interest for a particular topic. But again, I, th I think there is a divide in the interest in the topic in terms of the criminal justice interest and the interest for what would you say patterns and causes of crime uh, on the uh, one and the other hand, um, and then the former is obviously more prevalent. Yeah, this divide is especially visible in, in Europe uh, and is less visible in the United States. Would there be a particular reason, historically uh, speaking, for this divide? Uh, I I don't know, um, but I have the impression that there are at least in, in continental Europe, many criminology departments arose out of uh, the criminal law departments and, and law yeah. faculties yeah. and not the social sciences. Has this had uh, some impact? Yeah, no, I think I think from Sweden, as I understand it, it's mainly came from law and from um, uh, uh, psychiatry, the, the the initial interest in, and often that might explain the criminal justice interest. There were a lot of people who were lawyers who was interested in reforming the criminal justice systems and so on and went into. And I think the first um, professor in criminology in Sweden was Knut Sveri, who, who was a lawyer from Norway who came and, and took up the first chair in criminology and so on. So. Um, uh, it, it's um, yeah, it's quite remarkable. I, I agree that the difference between the US, where it's heavily dominated by uh, uh, sociology and, and to some extent psychology, um, as we can see from a lot, lot of the various. So I, th I think the emergence in, as you say, in Europe is is um, uh, very different from what it was in the in the US. If you think back to the Chicago School and things like that which started off the things and compare it in with the, the, the um, European situation. I can understand this, that mainly because of the fact that lawyers and, and um, so on are interested in, in social reform, that they um, take on the criminal justice practice. However, it's a bit of a pity because um, you cannot really change behavior or improve person's situations without understanding what drives their behavior. So. Um, <laughs> It's worth a reflection, I think. Yeah. So, um, can you tell us something about the institutionalization of criminology? Um, I mean, by institutionalization, the uh, institutes uh, and the educational programs which exist. For example, um, in the Flemish part of Belgium, we have bachelor programs, master programs, and PhD programs. Can you expand a little bit? Yeah. On 
that in the UK or Amsterdam? Yeah. When I when I used to work in Sweden, I worked at um, uh, Stockholm, which was the first criminology department that was set up. When I was there, it was the only criminological department. And now there are plenty um, uh, uh, popping up. It is, it's quite interesting, I think, that criminology is such a popular topic among students, given that the labor market is not that obvious if, if you do uh, criminology. I mean, the same situation with now when I'm in Cambridge. Cambridge was the first department also in the UK, and now there's a lot of departments uh, in the UK, so it has expanded. There's a lot of undergraduate programs uh, in, in criminology. What is uh, different, I guess, with Cambridge is that we do not run any specific undergraduate programs. Uh, the Institute provides some undergraduate teaching for sociology and law, but but no, we don't have an, uh, our own undergraduate. It, it's mostly a postgraduate institute and um, has been yeah. But I think there are some pressure for the institute to move towards <coughs> doing more undergraduate um, uh, teaching. I mean, if if we compare with the Swedish situation, criminology was not an independent topic from the beginning. Um, it was also part of it was actually at times part of sociology. So when I did did that, I had to do my PhD training in sociology, and then eventually it got it became its own department with its own exam rights um, later on and, and and developed. But it looks like criminology actually overtakes sociology in, in terms of student interests and so on which is quite uh, uh, interesting in, in uh, that sense. So uh, yeah, criminology is, uh, as you know, is expanding and has expanding for the, the about 40 plus years I've been working in this has expanded from quite a few institutes now to, to be uh, sort of enormous lot of, the, most universities seems to have some kind of criminology uh, uh, programs and so on. But also, again, a lot of the programs are focused on criminal justice issues, uh, if you look at various. So basically, um, at the level of educational programs, you also see this divide between criminology and criminal justice. Uh, do you think it's, uh, it has advantages to have undergraduate programs? Because criminology is, by definition, multidisciplinary. So if you organize graduate programs, uh, you can take in students with different backgrounds. but I mean, um, you have, of course, to invest in an undergraduate program. Uh, I, personally, I think um, having to deal with both is, is quite uh, a challenge. Mm. And I would yeah. personally to invest in, in postgraduate students, because if you have to start from scratch, you invest a lot in what you say, an increasing number of people. Indeed, um, there's an increasing number of persons. I think this is a general trend. I don't know, Marcelo. Um, how the situation is in Switzerland, but the increasing numbers indeed uh, it poses a lot of challenges. Yeah, well, you can see some problems. Uh, I mean, in Cambridge, since we don't have an undergraduate program, uh, the students we get them, uh, some of the students have done undergraduates in criminology. Some students come have done religion or they have done whatever subject um, and so on which is a bit of a challenge, I guess, from a teaching perspective, because some people have zero 
and knowledge about criminology and some have quite advanced. So that's um, and we since we don't have any requirement that people have to have a uh, um, criminology undergraduate degree to start, um, which I think uh, some other places may have that you actually have to have a degree if, you, if you're going to do postgraduate studies um, in that sense. Um, which is then again very different from Sweden, where where you uh, obviously need to have a, uh, an undergraduate degree to continue to do postgraduate studies. So it, it has an impact, um, especially. I mean, I can imagine that there's a big difference between programs who only have a postgraduate versus undergraduate level uh, with regard to knowledge of criminological theories. Uh, mm. Some people have zero background. I have to mm -hmm. start. Uh, start from scratch when other people have their um, knowledge and, and have been trained also in specific um, methods, uh, for example. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's another interesting issue because a lot of criminology, I mean, not all places, but a lot of criminology is, is you could say, tilted or focused on qualitative studies. So that also means that if, if you recruit people from other disciplines, the, primarily psychology, they are no, normally quite good in, in sort of stats methods and things like that. While, while many people come, not from all, but from some uh, criminological department. So that's, a, again, I guess another challenge when you, you have this system that um, people have very different backgrounds, both in, in the substantive knowledge and uh, as uh, comes to what kind of methods. Although personally, I think there is really no difference between qualitative and quantitative studies. We should, I think this is an artificial divide because we really should talk about what methods are good for what kind of research topics. So now it has, this is an interesting trend also, I think, because it has become so we are qualitative researchers and, and we are judged from one set of criteria of our research and we are quantitative <laughs> judged from a whole other. You really want to have a situation or, or idly where you judge the, all research in terms of quality from the same standards and, and so on. But it is kind of uh, fits also in, I guess, with different ideologies in terms of, of what research is and so on. But that that is, um, I guess, uh, in general in criminology, quite interesting and, and, and big problems and so on, and all, all, some that generate some conflicts and, and uh, between people and so on, um, in terms of w what is knowledge, what is real knowledge. And I mean, you have this expression now that people have very popular with lived experience, which has popped up now that one say that you, you really cannot know anything if you haven't sort of experienced it yourself, which is sort of very different from uh, other methods and so on. So the, there's tension um, between these two that that's, is, is around. Are, are there any ways of um, solving these uh, problems as a consequence of these tensions? Uh, or should be more room for an open dialogue, or is this has this become impossible in, in the current climate? I I, th I think it's difficult in in some senses because, I mean, if if you're trained, it, it's all almost like two paradigms, or two major paradigms. So so you're trained in how you think about it, what what is knowledge, what is 
sort of good methods and and uh, so on. Um, I don't think it it's good for criminology because give you an example I had a talk for some years ago in a suburb to uh, Stockholm to uh, sort of local crime prevention and then I talked about causes of crime and then the guy came up to me and said okay you say like this then we invite another criminologist and say something that different so in terms of for people who work in practice and policy uh, I mean that that's pretty complicated because I guess in contrast to some other more or you say solid sciences that uh, the, the, how how should they assess which are sort of the more yeah fundamental or more strong evidence and so on that but as we know and um, it, it is complicated and then we have the additional dimension that is also quite strong ideological impacts on on uh, people's choice of uh, uh, things and ideas and so on it, it's a complicated complicated field and Partly quite political, I think. I don't. I don't know what what you think, but uh, you feel that it's not only about sort of the evidence and the ideas. It's also about ideologies are important, and obviously ideologies are important in terms of how do you uh, deal with people who do crime, what things should be criminalized. But when it comes to the causes of crimes, I struggle a bit more to think that. It's it's a political dimension, so the causes could be different for people depending on 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 what uh, what kind of background they have. And, but there is, I think, that tendency that people, depending on their of their leaning politically, tends to favor certain kinds of. And I guess that I guess that is more pronounced in Europe than in the U.S. Or be, be sure that there is more sort of what do you think more disagreements about what is going on there? Well, maybe I think the political dimension really is important when you want to understand why some people uh, prefer some kind of uh, interventions, rehabilitation versus uh, prevention initiatives. But it's also a huge problem that there is a lack of distinction between actual causes and, and more distal causes. So people favoring, for example, social prevention, stress, social problems and, for example, ecological concentrations of poverty um, as major causes, which I do not mm. think they are unimportant, but they need to put an integrated framework. And it's the issue of integration and, and people who think too ideologically uh, tend to focus either too much on the environment or too much on the individual actor. And this is where things go wrong. I mean, there's a difference I mean, between trying to understand something even while crime is a social construction between brackets, if you talk about what is criminalized, of course, but the action, the actual behavior is behavior yeah. which harms. So I think this distinction um, situation has been better some 20 years ago when mm -hmm. there was an open dialogue, but I have the feeling that the, uh, the struggles like the, the political situation in the 1970s has come back, but not in the same way, um, but the same ideological contradictions are just re-emerging under the influence of what one might call um, the, well, what some people call woke movements and the extremes of, of, of this uh, movement. Why I'm not saying that it's unimportant to um, address these problems, it's just the way you deal with it or you overreact. Um, I think mm -hmm. we have a huge 
issues to, to think about. But I wouldn't know how to bring scholars together to have a constructive dialogue and to improve the situation for criminologists. Yeah, perhaps, Pio, you can help us here because um, you were there, you are one of the founders of the European Society of Criminology. Yeah. I have the impression that uh, the generation that founded the society was very open to empirical research yeah. when you look at the names and uh, and the projects that were there, the International Crime Victim Survey, the International Self-Reported yeah. Inconsistency Study, the European yeah. Search Book. Yeah. Nowadays, I have the impression when we want to recruit new people for the European Search Book, it is not so yeah. easy to, to find no. that. Yeah, no, it, it is. I, I remember very well. I mean, I, I, I think uh, when it started, I met Yusin uh, Jungitas in Stockholm, then then what uh, I think was the first we talked about doing, uh, uh, and then the, I think the Dutch took care of that, and then Michael came in and, and uh, took over and, and fixed it up. So, um, but at that time, uh, at least the, the idea with the European society was, well, the idea was that we, we do, there is a lot of good research in Europe, there's a lot of national, um, uh, criminological association and most people went to the US to the ASC so if you wanted to hear something about other European research you have to go to the ASC basically and so on um, but it also was I think the idea to foster sort of European criminology because that there is a tendency I think um, in Europe to, to think about the US as the the measure for everything good in terms of I'm, I mean I'm obviously as you might I'm, I'm uh, have no negativity against American criminology I've been doing a lot but I, th I think there is a problem that um, give you a good illustration one of the EEC conferences we, we had the meeting I, th I think uh, which was supposed to uh, include Michael Gottfriedson and uh, three other Europeans and the room was full, there were hundreds of people. And then someone came and said, well, unfortunately, Michael Gottschalk couldn't come. And then basically most of the people stood up and walked out. And the two Europeans uh, who were left, which in one sense is quite rude, I think, but it shows you, it, it illustrates some point. And, and, and my, my understanding is also, I might be wrong about this, but often that the, when the European organizers that they often like to have an American uh, as, as keynote speakers. The whole idea with the European society was actually to, to foster European criminology and, and, and so on. I, th I think that that's quite important. I hope still that that is something we can do uh, better. I lost your question. The, the ESC, we also, um, the idea is not to have more than one speaker from the from the US. Yeah. Uh, there is this idea, yeah. but my my impression is that there is a change of generation. Uh, that there was a generation yeah. that was very empirical, and some people criticized the yeah. ESC because it was very empirical. And now, with all this explosion of institutes, uh, you have, of mm -hmm. course, different the trends. Ideology is taking a lot of space in these new debates, in the current debates. I think you're right in the sense that the people who started the European society uh, was empirically oriented researchers. This was dominated by empirically oriented researchers. But slowly and surely, 
I think the uh, European society has recruited people from other places, so that's probably reason why it changed and the expansion of the changed face uh, a bit. But um, um, I agree with you. It, in, in some sense, it was more perhaps homogeneous from the beginning, and, and now it's more heterogeneous in, in so on. And, in terms of that, so and and man can obviously discuss uh, to what extent that is good and bad, but in in terms of development, but um, it has expanded quite a lot from the early days, and so yeah. on. Uh, the idea was to have an inclusive society; everyone could talk. But I have the impression that now it is much more difficult to find people willing to um, yeah to, co to coordinate a network across Europe, like the International Crime Victim Survey, which we launched, yeah. we tried to relaunch. It was not so uh, so easy. Eh? Perhaps it's also the way in which uh, positions are being um, offered now, and then you um, you have to publish, and you have to publish in some journals, and, and yeah. get some, and, and perhaps these huge European projects uh, in the long term, yeah, require a lot of uh, work, and you cannot yeah. get so many publications as you wish. I don't know, I, I feel that there is a change. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a disaster, this published uh, parish, because, I mean, if you think about it, if people have published a lot of articles on, on piecemeal pieces, we, we, we have, uh, the people I work with, we all always worked for doing sort of bigger, longer projects, as you know, with the, 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 the latest book we do now, which hopefully <laughs> will come out this year, it took us seven years, and we worked with that for seven years, and, and so on. And that you can do, obviously, if you have um, have a permanent position and so on and and uh, well you have to publish obviously with, uh, something but it's easier but if you are a young scholar it, it's is problematic but the, the idea of, of doing small slices like this I think contributes to this fragmentation of knowledge because obviously I mean as we said before you you have people and you have uh, the, the situations and you have macro. If, if you want to try to understand how it works, you need to combine the two and then you, you cannot do that in the small article. One publisher we used, they, they're going to stop doing um, paperbacks now, so I guess soon it's, it's going to be, it gets more and more difficult to do monographs. <clears throat> the trend that um, I guess taken from science is that, that we should do uh, PhD thesis by papers. I also think it's a bit contraproductive because doing it as, as a book gives you sort of a, a more holistic way of working and then to do small articles and then write the summary of them. And you can understand why they do that in sciences. I'm not just sure that it's, it's beneficial for our discipline. Do you mean criminology or social sciences in, in general? Um... Well, it, it depends a bit, bit on what you think about, but I mean, generally, I, th I think uh, it, it depends again. I, I, I can think of uh, some exceptions where it, it's useful to do that. But if we, if we stick to criminology, I, I think it's it's um, it's probably uh, not an entirely positive. I mean, there's always exception, but that that could be good if if you really have a research program where where uh, and then you publish the things. But then you could as well do it as a book in the first place uh, and so on and it also means when when you do a thesis that you already if you already published the things it's not much new in the thesis 
I think it's quite interesting what you're saying um, in, in connection with what you said. Eh? What the difference may be, in my opinion, is that um, many of the American theories of the 20th century are, I would say, yeah, grounded basis. basis. Um, like uh, here she told me, I got the, the data, I was trying to test uh, anomy theory, and then I discovered it did not fit, yeah. so I developed a new theory. In yeah. your case, you spend a lot of time, as you mentioned, uh, reading philosophy. So yeah. maybe this is a good time. I, I wonder how did, how did you arrive, for example, to Mario Bunge? Okay, I, I can tell you exactly how that happened. I mean, the 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 first part of my life, uh, make my point, I basically did empirical studies. And I really think that there's a problem when young people start to do theories the first they do because it's quite complicated, but that's a different point. But I had a break. I, I got a, uh, was a fellowship at the, the Stanford Advanced Center, and that gave me time. That's where I had time to just read and so on. And then I one day went down to the Stanford University bookshop and then I walk around and then I found a book by, by Mario Bunge and I read it and I thought this is fantastic. This is this one? Uh, so and then I actually contacted him. So then I um, started to uh, correspond with him and then I met him. Uh, I went to see him in, in Canada and then I also had him over for a conference. But he was also kind to to I the, when I did <coughs> writings about causations and so on, I sent stuff to him and asked for which uh, so um, and I think he is probably the most impressive scholar I've ever met and, and talked. I'm I'm extremely impressed. <laughs> I mean, no, normally you don't easily get impressed, but Mario Bung is he is in in sort of a, a different and so so that's why it was by accident by. Which I quite like. Go around in the in the bookshop and see, look for things I haven't read before, and so on. And then I find this, and then I got more and more, and and so on. And he was, um, I mean, as you know, that's what you hope. Uh, I mean, he became basically 100 years old yeah. and still wrote books in his 90s, one a year. It's amazing. So, uh, yeah. But we, we perhaps we should lead up. But I, I think the important thing is is uh, with that is that a lot of the inspiration for for my work on SAT has come from other parts than criminology. Obviously, it takes in criminology uh, in a sense because some people said to me it's another routine activities theories, another control theories, another. Which is quite good because then it's it works because it's <laughs> people see different things, um, but I, but I think the that was the major uh, sort of break in in and um, I think reading a lot of action philosophy, which I did then was sort of a main inspiration, because the, I felt we need something to tie together this individual and environmental. A lot of theories is just focused on psychological. I mean, risk factors is a typical example. You just list characteristics one after another, or you have environments, but you don't really know how it works. So the basic foundation is that if we want to understand how environments work, and so we, we need to understand how they affect people, because people are the, the people are the ones who do the crimes, and so on. So, so that's the simple. So that became the vehicle for 
bringing together sort of people and environments through through that. So that was the background, I think. I also am very much impressed by the work of Mario Bunge, especially the way he developed his thinking about causation. I think if, if people would read a, a lot more about philosophy of science and philosophy of causation, it would help their theorizing and their um, ideas to sharpen their ideas because this way of analytic thinking in, in philosophy, um, which is so um, typical of Maria Bunge, really forces mm. it to think of why, what makes something tick, what makes something happen. Um, this, this foundational thinking about theories is just lacking in, in almost all criminology programs. So I think if you want to improve um, our future generations of criminologists, they should have this kind of courses before they get in touch with uh, all the classic criminological theories. They should know something about basic uh, philosophy of action, philosophy of causation, what causation is and what it isn't. So, so I mean, uh, following on from what, what Marcello say also, that action theory is one thing. The other th thing um, what was unhappiness with risk factors, that it's really processes rather, and that links to what Levin says with, with this causation. So what, because if, if you think you have a risk factor saying that if you, you live with a single parent, you're more likely, and I looked at one study yesterday, more likely being that 20% who lived with the single parents compared to 9% who non did crimes, but 80, 90% in both cases did not. And then you, but the key thing is the process. Why sort of, why would this, if you just ask the why and how questions more, I think that would be really helpful because why would this be important? How does it work? And that that's I, I guess something that uh, we talked about. Bung is 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 really championing that the the reason to to understand the processes, and that that also means I think that you can reduce the number of factors and so to a few basic processes that you're interested in, and that's uh, um, makes life much easier. And then if you're interested in policy and prevention. Um, these are the processes that one should try to affect. In, in so on. instead of trying to, as you know, there are hundreds of risk factors. So if if you're chasing risk factors and you develop program for them, I mean it's it's almost hopeless uh, in a sense. Just say one more thing on the, the things I think I think Levin started also with, and also you can see when you work long time that people tends to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so I, I was thinking, and I make one observation there because I had, uh, I did a comment on, on a student for some pre-PhD comment who did on ecology. And then uh, uh, I noticed that there were, was not very much included in his work with the, more than 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, and, and then I said, but, but there was a lot done in this particular country, I'm trying to be discreet here, uh, uh, before uh, that. And then he told me, but, but yeah, but you can't find it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, it looks like some people stop going to libraries also. So if it's not digitalized, digitized uh, then it doesn't exist. And that is that is a small but probably significant problems it's very convenient, obviously, to be able to download everything and find articles, but all the stuff 
you're probably going to miss a lot of all the stuff by doing that. So yeah, especially what you said about walking in. Uh, when I was studying, I paid my studies basically working uh, in Switzerland, working in the library of uh, Freiburg, Freiburg, Switzerland. Eh? Yeah. So I, I was there and the, when you smell the books and you go there and sometimes yeah. it's very often you find things. Eh? Jorge Luis Borges, the, the, the writer also was um, a fan of libraries and walking there and you never know what can happen. A book is mm -hmm. there waiting for you somehow and and this is I force my students <laughs> to for one of the of the methodology um, because a couple of uh, at least one of the journals in French has not yet uh, yet been digitalized. So I force them yeah. to look for articles on this journal. Yeah. But this I, I'm not. I don't know how long it's going to work because they are now digitalizing it. So it's very difficult to force people to find a way of uh, forcing yeah. them to go there and to get. Um, used to this exercise because it is an exercise. I, I think it's an interesting question I ask myself. Is is it because I'm getting old that I, th I think uh, that, that you should really read books <laughs> and so on? So so it might be that if you grow up with uh, sort of everything on the Internet, that is that is. The, but, uh, but I find it very hard, let's say, uh, to sit and read and lay in bed and read and having a, uh, some kind of digital you really want to feel the book and so on. And also I think you read differently, but it might just be a generational thing that, but it would be pretty sad if the books were vanishing from uh, things. I, I agree. There's another advantage with, with books, I guess, that is, you also mentioned already the, the, piecemeal, uh, the piecemeal information. Uh, you can yeah. tell everything in, in one empirical article, but also if you trace the history of, someone's PhD. I was, for example, at Ghent University, one of the last uh, who was forced to write a book. Now we have the choice mm -hmm. to write a book either or uh, publish your PhD on articles. But in, the, in that case, mm -hmm. there has to be one general line yeah. and a, a red thread. So no separate articles, but just one key question and, and each chapter can be seen as a different article. But mm -hmm. Articles in general never give you the profoundness, and, and at least um, there's millions of articles being published right now. Uh, for me, uh, my PhD was on social disorganization theory and, and uh, neighborhood yeah. effects, which I integrated on with the I mean, previous, uh, yeah. version, the original version uh, of, of or the beginnings of uh, situational action theory, and I felt that I mean when I read all these articles on, on social disorganization theory and I follow them now it's like impossible to to get an overview so books yeah. are really important to give you the overview and i mean meta analysis and so on analysis and so on i think if you're drowning in articles it's not going to be very helpful in the future because you can just that's a good way to get published today or get a lot of quotations do a meta systematic review because since people basically likes not to have to do all the work themselves so it it's, seems to be very popular but but I, I guess that is that is also another good thing that is is a bit problematic in 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 terms of uh, because you mix a lot of different quality uh, stuff and I know people try to take that into account one good study could outperform 
10 bad studies, but if you just join them, so it's, I'm, I'm not sure that's always a tendency that is really helpful for knowledge gathering. But when I say something on the books, we said, because one thing I remember, especially from when I was a student and reading a famous French sociologist, and then if you have a book, I was reading on page 10, and then I was on page 50, I think, but he's contradicted himself, and then I could flick back to page 10 quickly, which is much harder if you do it on the net, and then flick back and see, is, is this really consistent and so on and so on. There's a lot of good things with books, I think we probably agree on. Another thing on, on articles and the problems with articles is, I mean, you hear this discussion in other disciplines. I don't know to what extent it's being studied in criminology, but you hear, especially in psychology, the issue of the replication crisis and the fact that yeah. probably a lot of studies who report no results are not being published. I don't know to what extent <laughs> one would expect this to be the case in criminology, but we don't have a clue and, and the uh, publication pressure will probably have an effect on, on this as well. Uh, so we might overestimate the empirical value of, for example, uh, some theories uh, who are yeah. tested a lot, uh, like control theory or different versions yeah. of control theory, social learning theory. It's quite unclear. Um, but, but, but you have a problem that leaves it. One thing that people don't, which I find quite interesting, is when people test theory, it's rarely people have very good data for testing the theory. Uh, I mean, I, I think you, you mentioned source, social learning theory, and I, I think Aker said that there's so many studies who shows that uh, peer delinquency is strongly connected, and therefore they support social learning, but they can support hundreds of theories oh. and so on. So, so in the in the sense, um, instead of doing sort of systematic reviews, just counting sort of the the outcomes, it would also be quite good to have studies, and that that's obviously much harder to go through studies and actually check how well they actually test what they say they test, because a lot of I, I think when you see people just report, or oh, this study didn't support that theory and so on, and then you go read it, but. Perhaps it didn't test the theory. <laughs> and and if you look at journal editors, I, th I th think this is, they spend enormous lot of, uh, well, some of them on, on let's say, the, the methods and so on. Not so much on data. And as you know, garbage in, garbage out. There's rarely you, you see any comments say, are, are your data really good? And so on. But then they can spend enormous lot of time on, on the coefficients and things like that, and the uh, tests and measurements and so on. It's a problem, I think. And and also, I think, I think I don't know what you think. It, it Sometimes I, I think more simple analysis might be useful because in the complex, if we do really complex methods, uh, structural equation modelings, latent variables and so on, you in, in a sense lose risk to lose what's really going on. So just as an example, when that's why part of the reason why it takes a long time to do the book we do is that really checking cross table, go back to basics and see that there is really something going on. Because if you run these models in the it even if they're significant, they could be sort of not very important findings and so on. So you and that that's probably is a problem for our field that um the, the the criteria of importance is this an important finding because as we know a statistically significant finding might not be 
important at all. So, yeah, I agree. And maybe this has to do with, with the fact that we are, in a way, when we test theories, um, kind of like obliged to, to use statistical methods because we cannot use experiments all the time and uh, we cannot only rely on qualitative methods. We need both. So the tendency mm -hmm. to over-control in, in quantitative studies, too many variables, uh, some effects may disappear, something important. Um, mm -hmm. You may have two variables which basically uh, are related to the same construct. I think all this shows us that we, in criminology, when we test theories, we think too much in terms of just variables and people are not a collection yeah. of variables. And also, I think it would be much helped if, if you go back to the problem of risk factors, because people say that these factors affect this factor. What it normally shows is, let's say, if we take um, uh, again, the example with uh, with single parents, what it shows, it's more common that uh, that people who have a single parent has done crime. It doesn't show that it is uh, an effect. So the, the more single parents you have, so to speak, the f f because most people, it has no effect. So if, if we were talking about in that terms, rather than the effect of, of having a single parent, saying that it's more common, then then it would perhaps help also uh, theorizing a bit better. Well, actually, a, a good point here, and maybe there is something that can be done because um, I have the impression that sometimes these problems arise because of the way in which criminology is being taught. Huh? And mm -hmm. um, many of the programs in Europe use uh, American books, uh, North American books uh, from the USA, and uh, you see, in these books, the, the, the new theories huh, are yeah. almost never there. For example, you, you cannot find uh, easily um, clear reference to situational action theory. You cannot find reference to the works of Richard Tremblay, for example. So, Mike, mm -hmm. should, shouldn't, for example, you, Pio, with all that you know about theories, eh, shouldn't we try to do something also like a book, a, a, a European the, um, handbook, which presents theories in a different way. Shouldn't we try to teach them differently? Well, I, I, I think that's an excellent idea. I, I think, I guess, the only way to do it is on English. I mean, and as Levens know, we, we, I'm working, have a project on doing a, a book uh, of that way in Sweden. So we're half well done, but that's in Swedish, which I will see, but which basically talks about uh, not theories, but, but uh, sort of ideas, how important is the person, how important, and then bringing in theories in that way and so on. But, but I agree with you in, in um, a project, um, sort of uh, European project might be quite good to do and, and, and so on. And also perhaps focus a bit more on uh, European research and so on. That might be a good idea for the, the European Association to, to initiate in, in a sense. But I mean, I'm always scared with this project. It really requires then that people are prepared to spend a lot of time. So it just not becomes like people write disparate chapters on somewhere and they have no coordination and so on, because the whole idea would be to obviously to coordinate it and, and have it as a coherent. But that's not that's not that, that that's quite a good idea. I think it might even 
have get some odd person in the US interested in, <laughs> in, in something. Even if you publish in, in Sweden, the Nordic countries, has they have this um, policy of uh, helping with the translation of the books to English. Yeah. Because uh, part of the success of these uh, criminal uh, books, the, the noir books, the books on crime by um, a lot of writers from the Nordic countries, one factor is that uh, you can get them translate and then it's much more easier to get the publication. The, the only problem I think with think with that, Marcelo, is that uh, I mean, if you do in one specifically for Sweden, it's very specifically for Sweden. So, so I think if if I were to do that project, one should really do. One can obviously capitalize a bit on on on, on the work done, but it should really be a new project rather than the translation. I think I think that will work better. So in this sense, I'm. I'm looking at your questions here. We so uh, I don't know. We have a lot of interesting discussions, but we haven't co covered much of your questions. <laughs> so I don't know if that. We still need to cover the, the challenges, the key challenges for criminology as a as a discipline, and we need to to talk about the policy influence. Perhaps then we can talk a bit about challenges. And we basically we have talked about challenge. I mean, I guess this. Uh, Fragmentation is is mm -hmm. kind of a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. But but I also I, I think um, since we talked about theory that really and that that links into policy because what I think you can see in policy is that they really lack guidance. They really lack guidance and basically answer the question because if you want to prevent something, you need to know what to influence, and that basically means you need to have some idea what causes the problem which means that the causes of crime is crucial for prevention. But a lot of people who, who I guess who worked in policy prevention are quite uninterested or not interested in, 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 in that issue. The, the situation of crime prevention, although it has some merits, has been really not a good development for prevention because it, it, it focus it, it or it fosters this idea that which I know uh, is even promoted in Sweden that that you should yourself go out and try to identify a problem then you should yourself as a, as a policy person try to find out what its causes is and then you should try to find out how to do it so basically it becomes uh, an orientation where where you say to practitioners that you find out what the problem is you find out what the causes is and you find out which is obviously very difficult in a sense um, without having any real support uh, from that. I mean, there you can see that in the, the, the Swedish Crime Prevention Council have done sort of books for local crime prevention. So basically are focused on, on uh, uh, one book focused on finding out what is the local problems. The, the second book is uh, um, second book is on what they call analysis of causes which basically is saying that you should sit down if you identify a problem, you should sit down with the other local people and try to find out what, what, why it happens and then do something about it. Which I find quite interesting because here you have a national crime prevention place where, where you think that that wasn't their job to try to help the local people or inform them about what might cause problems and so on. So, so I, th I think that again, as as you started with saying that this issue with theory and causation and so on, 
has come a bit in the backwater. I mean, most people nowadays think they know what the causes are, even if there are hundreds of different ideas about it, which is a bit of a problem. And, and perhaps even in the same land about the challenges, uh, we, we talk about, um, yeah, many in many uh, countries, uh, criminology can, is in the, in the law department, and you mentioned that you had to study sociology. But one thing yeah. that you have done in Cambridge also is open a little bit to or not a little bit open also to neurosciences because uh, yeah. Cambridge you have uh, Kyle Treiber for example yeah how did you arrive to the, to this uh, to open your eyes to this or uh, uh, I, I came quite late eh, from <laughs> from um, so are you talking specifically what we do now yeah how we became yeah 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 I mean it it, it was the, the sort of a, again kind of a a coincidence because I I was before Kyle emerged uh, I was interested in this dual idea with uh, sort of the the duality of thinking sort of uh, quick and and so on and and had read on that because when I was reading as I said before about the two minds idea that uh, interested in action theory that was quite uh, common uh, in the sense thinking fast thinking slow and that that there were actually so I was interested, but since I have no speciality in that, and then she turned up in Cambridge and did an uh, uh, MPhil. I think her original idea was just to do an MPhil and go home, but then the, um, she starts the, stayed on and did the PhD on this. I learned a lot about neuro stuff from her in, in, in terms of her work and so on, so, so she did the whole and, and she's obviously specialized in that. Um, so that that's the link came in. And then eventually, as you know, she got the job as our neuropsychologist. So in, in, in that sense, which is quite good. So so then she has she has also fostered uh, some new people that are interested in this area. But here you can see another problem then. So one thing that still, which I hope that is good with Cambridge, is that it used to be the idea that we should have one psychologist, one sociologist, one lawyer, so so post. And, and when I came, I was actually the sociology replacement uh, for the guy, so that was the post. But now that has been vanished, this idea that we should have the various disciplines represented. But that is good for the cross-fertilization. But I guess it, it's it's a bit more... It could be problematic if you, if you are specialized in an area, but what a lot of people have done, as I understand this, is that the, the institute has been like a hub. So let's say David Farrington worked with a lot of people outside the institute and, and Tony Bottoms. So people work with people, but the actual institute is kind of multidisciplinary in nature, but people still work. But I, th I think, as I said, I think that that's unfortunately seemed to vanish a bit. The, this basic idea that you should have that. Uh, because it, it, nowadays it's more specialized. So, so let's say when this discussions, it's more like before you should have a, someone who is on psychology, sociology, law. Now it is, should we have someone who do uh, human trafficking? So it's these very specific problems rather than the disciplines. Or, or uh, internet, we, we need someone who do internet and, and so on. And obviously there are hundreds of various things like that, so you cannot cover everything in, in, in that sense. 
But was it easy for you to introduce in the institute someone from um, a completely different field? Because I have the impression that it's not so um, so easy to come yeah. our colleagues, no? Or some of our colleagues. No, I, I think I think it was fine. I, I, I'm not sure what, exactly what you mean, but I, I think it's fine because at that point, um, I mean, if you differentiate the, the point when, when, if you talk about the point when Kyle was uh, appointed, I think the, the, it was Larry who was director. Larry this was is pretty open-minded and interested in in stuff like that. He was very interested in thinking slow, thinking fast. I think he was not negative to have someone with the neuro. We used to have, um, as I said before, we had the sociologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, lawyer. So, so you could say, in some sense, it's also a replacement for a psychiatrist, but with a bit different orientation, I guess. But uh, the, there is a big, uh, the, there is a quite a big uh, generation of ships in Cambridge now. Because most people have uh, are retiring, so Tony has retired, David has retired, Larry's retiring. Well, he still do so. I'm retiring. There's a lot of people who. Uh, so it's it, it's a new young generation. But you retire, but you will continue. I suppose. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay in Cambridge? Uh, even if I know we, the idea is not to talk about the persons, but in this yeah, case, I also have some uh, contacts with Malmo uh, because a lot of my colleagues from before are now working in Malmö, so so I have uh, do something with Malmö. But then obviously the PAD study uh, you can work on forever. <laughs> we have so much data, so it's it's um, so I'm not. Uh, but the immediate idea is to stay on in Cambridge and then see as you get older, see what how life turns out. We never know. <laughs> yeah, you talked about one thing which is, I think, also a key challenge of criminology. You mentioned the fact that people nowadays are tending to focus on very specific topics, for example, um, wildlife crime or um, internet uh, crimes, radicalization yeah. online and so on. I think this is a little bit problematic for the development of the field and also with regard to policy because uh, people tend to reinvent the wheel and, and tend to try to apply new theories for each and every phenomenon. It's can not possibly the way to have some impact. No, I, I, I think it's a very good point, Lewis, because also you find that in policy. I remember at the time when I worked at the Crime Prevention Council, we, we always got pressure that some kind of crime happened. You have to do a study about this crime. So, And I try to argue that we should have a basic project about crime and causation somewhere interesting uh, that you could apply to problems rather than sort of um, I mean I specif specifically mentioned there was uh, some um, parking attendants who stole coins from parking meters and then then they said oh you need to do a program this this such specific thing to do study about that and so on. so, so it, it's a bit the same problem as as Levin says that if you focus on that also in prevention that you focus on very small things and if you look at prevention I think and this is also linked to the popularity of situational crime prevention is that the interest and in, in, in people's crime propensities and how you influence that is, is really going down 
and I think you can, you can reasonably argue that that is much more effective because we know that most people most of the times don't do crime. We don't see crime as well. Uh, and then you don't need all these locks and so on. So it's not, not because they they have a camera on a parking lot that I refrain from stealing a car. I mean, I, I wouldn't steal it regardless if they have locks or uh, and so on. So I, th I think I think we are lacking a bit of uh, of that. Obviously, it might be slightly more controversial because it it, it is about how do you affect people's values and norms and so on. But I, I think I think that's an important debate to have for for future when it comes to to policy. I mean, people get really scared when you talk about morality. So actually, one European colleague suggested to me that I should talk about norms instead. <laughs> uh, but they, but it's basically the same thing. It's it's just that, uh, and, and I, I just want to say that one of the major um, misunderstandings as I think people get nervous about is that they, they think the argument is that people who do crime lack morality. That's not the argument. People have different moralities. Everyone has a morality. I mean, you, you can't be without a morality. So the question is understanding how come that, that uh, people come to see, to, uh, for instance, shooting a game member is okay or stealing pension fund money. Well, how does that emerge in the sense? But I, I guess morality is such a loaded word. So, so people always think that there is this virtue ethics that is a right, that if you talk about morality, you talk about that there is a right morality, but that's not necessary if you want to explain why people do as they do, which is more by having that. And people have different, as you know, views on that. I mean, think just about animal rights, vegans eating food and so on. People have different views and that affects what they think about them. So it's not more, it's not more difficult than that, I think. I think people just often, I mean, make the naturalistic or moralistic fallacy or both. I mean, and I think this is bad because it hampers the influence criminology could have. Uh, you mentioned um, people tend to forget um, in prevention to focus on people's propensities. However, yeah. uh, this is basically, I mean, very important for social prevention because in the long run, if yeah. you want enduring changes. I mean, yeah. we need to talk about how to change people's views on things. And a lot of social prevention is about trying to influence how people think. Uh, so you can yeah. also do influence how people think about what they should perceive. But you have a good example, even in, in the sense that if you look at different crime, cat crime categories, if you talk about things like partner violence, it's okay to talk about morality mm -hmm. and say that people who, who solve the partners that they so on. If you talk about youth crimes, it's not okay. <laughs> so, so it depends on if it talks about economic crimes, if you talk about insider trading and so on, if you talk about polit politicians who misbehave, it's okay in terms of morality. But, but for some sense, different kinds of crimes, sometimes the crimes should be not be explained or have nothing to do, which I guess is unreasonable because I don't know if you agree, but there's very different standards for when you can talk about morality, depending on what, what crime category we talk about. War crimes, 
I mean, there's no one who talks about risk factors for people in war crimes and say that they uh, that they, they did this because of A, B, and C. These are very interesting examples, and maybe in some maybe in some languages, the words are more more loaded than in others. For example, in French, yeah. the fact that the first statistics were called moral statistic, eh? statistic moral, uh, and people yeah. go in the wrong sense. You explain it very well, eh? but may, some people may take it um, as you said in the in the wrong idea that this is what you should yeah. do. And, yeah. If you think about it, if I mean, I think morality or norms, whatever you want to call it, is is a really good concept to integrate because if you look at all kinds of disciplines, if you look at let's say neuro psychology, how rule making is important for us to work. Look at social psychology, norms and rules are really important. Sociology, Dirk Ham and so on. So this this idea that uh, the rules or the norms we have and so on is really important runs through a, a lot of different disciplines. So it's a good starting point for, I think, for in, integrating insights from various uh, perspectives. And also, uh, as Levens know from since we have recently, uh, even from evolutionary thinking. Yeah, the combination of rules and, and moral emotions, um, I think, can be an overarching umbrella to combine insights from different disciplines and to, to get a more integrated view on, on basic processes. Uh, it also helps you thinking in terms of yeah. proximate versus ultimate causes and mechanisms. And, and it would help criminology a lot, I think, because many theories which are applied to, to policy, be it social policy or situational crime prevention policy, are all based on these outdated views on human nature. And this is why many crime preventive initiatives may be doomed to fail because, for example, much uh, or many preventive initiatives start from the idea that people basically only do cost-benefit analysis in a monetary way or in a classic uh, RCT, rational choice theory uh, way, which is, of course, a simplification. But during many decades, people thought like this. And yeah, yeah. For, for classic control theory, people... Uh, were defining selfishness in a way which was never meant to be defined in, in evolutionary theory. So I think sometimes new insights can change uh, the way criminological theories think about human nature and social order. I think you also do this in situational action theory. Prevention, if criminologists want to have an impact on, on um, policy, preventive or rehabilitation, then they yeah. should, I mean, start with knowing how people work. And also, you have one problem which which is problematic if you think about risk factor oriented or a lot of perspectives. They're very deterministic. I mean, the, the issue of agency that, that people actually have possibilities. I mean, we, we all act within the constraints of our environments and so on, but within the constraints, people have possibilities to make choices. And this is also important, I, I think. For understanding, because I mean, even if you look at people in the worst of neighborhoods and people who live in the worst of conditions, most people who grow up in these kinds of areas do not uh, develop serious criminality uh, and so on. So, so um, we we risk to have very simplistic uh, ideas uh, about w what is going on. And if you want to prevent it, the, the real question, if you talk about 
sort of problematic areas or whatever you like to call them. It's obviously more common that people with talking about youth crimes who do serious crimes comes from these areas, but most people who come from these areas do not do crime. So the, the, the really trick is to find out what differentiate these people, what differenti differentiate the people who, who um, sort of uh, goes on and develop from, from actually the majority who don't, even if they have very problematic and tough conditions and, and, and so on. So this is a problem I think that we have not paid enough attention to, which is again is important for policy and, and, and prevention to uh, so we do the right thing to help people. Just because you mentioned this uh, issue of the neighborhoods, there's a lot of discussions uh, in uh, going on now about the youth uh, criminality in Sweden, especially gangs. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, first of all, it, it, it's a relatively small group of people, but they, they do obviously a lot of harm and so on. And then they, they really struggle because they you can't really have people running around shooting each other but the, and also because a lot of people are not involved have started to get affected some people have got hit and, and so on when obviously when you shoot in uh, and so on but if you look at uh, i think the history from uh, from uh, the, the chicago school onwards I mean, the basic structure factor is never a good idea to concentrate people with a lot of different problems in the same neighborhood. That includes people who have mental problems, to people who have uh, uh, previous criminality, dr drug problems, but also people who who has just immigrated, who comes new to the country and don't know. If you mix all these people in the same area, uh, and and a lot of people in this. I think that the likelihood that environments that might be conducive to this, it's easy for them to rise. But still, we, we need to, I mean, you know, all the collective uh, efficacy research and so on. So, which basically is a moral argument. It says that the social and moral climate of the, how people uh, do rules and so on in that, uh, how that actually emerged. But still, we need, we, we don't really know why still it's only a minority in these areas who uh, get influenced and you also have the part that people actually make choices so some of them might actually and, and and if you think about this slippery slope kind of idea that, that you could make some choices that is not so dramatic in the early but then you get on a roll and then suddenly you are involved in the in the gang and, and so on but understanding all this, I think, would be really important for prevention and trying to uh, do something uh, about it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. This is um, we have a lot uh, to think about, and I hope our listeners will uh, be affected by our invitation to think about how criminology might change. You touched upon many interesting challenges. Any final uh, ideas of how criminology can um, evolve in, in, the, in the future or what would be good uh, in a way um, to improve criminology in, in, for example, the UK and Sweden? Um, yeah. Based on your experience? Well, well, it's difficult to say because, I mean, now since there, as you say, there are so many institutions and they are very different. But but I think that we were talked about that, that, that 
to work to get some more coherent view of, of how people and places and so on work together, especially for in terms and perhaps a bit more interest in in, in theory and the, the problem of causes, which I think also might be helpful for policy and prevention. And I, I just read the uh, typical uh, read some Swedish sort of general governmental documents and so on. They, they typically say that crime is a complex problem with many causes, <laughs> which, is, which, which is not helpful for anyone, is it? Because they, they run the, and that's not just one document. Basically, all documents I read start off with saying that. And then they say to, to do something about crime, we must uh, attack causes on various levels and involve various people. It's, it's very unspecific. Um, and I really like this old David Matsam quote, uh, which I've used sometimes, where he, where he says we are in the hopeless position to argue that everything matters. Because it, it is a bit like that. And, and, and that's why we probably have a need to work towards more integration of uh, rather than more uh, diversity in terms of development of uh, various ideas. So integration as a means to to counter the over specialization, actually. Yeah, no, no. And then you you need to have a frame to do that, to, because that instead of people competing, uh, sort of psychologists competing with sociologists and so on, you should really try to find out what various things can contribute to. But then you need to have some kind of frame to do that. Well, I think that um, there's a lot of um, challenges awaiting <laughs> if you listen yeah. to the podcast i can imagine that policymakers think wow it's, it's even more difficult than we thought i hope they will not uh, become depressed and stimulate research uh, <laughs> but think about this people start with the wrong questions they start with asking okay well what characteristics have offenders compared to others what characteristics instead starting with us why do people do crime and simply saying that, yeah, they do crime because they think it's okay to do that in this situation. And then the next question will be, okay, so how come that people think, or some people think that this is okay? And then you work yourself up from that. Uh-huh. I think you get better answers then and, and more focus on, on um, to answer the question. So then you come into, the, as you say, that the, is it because uh, a sort of rational choice that we try to do and that, that doesn't work really well because most people don't do crimes or uh, in the sense so yeah anyway it is a nice way of starting the the discussion to think about that and uh, and perhaps this just one last thing because yeah. I'm trying to to take people from the same country and uh, one yeah. common thing that I that I found Henrik Tam mentioned that but also Uberto Gatti mentioned uh, from Italy that when they started their careers they are much older than, than you, at least 15 years, yeah. I think, or maybe more. The typical person who was in jail was a poor person, you know. Uh, and nowadays, that is no longer the, the case of the persons who are in prison. And that is also perhaps why the, the theories um, need to, to be uh, adapted. Have you experienced yeah. a change in, 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 your, uh, in your career? I don't. I don't know. I mean, that's a difficult question to to ask, and that that's probably probably difficult to answer because in in, in terms of uh, 
doing the kinds of studies we do now we didn't do in at that time so it, it's difficult to compare but but from a, a sort of a personal which I think is interesting I mean I was when I started the criminology and that's sort of the training is that I was totally convinced that everything was about socioeconomic factors and so on and so on and as the longer you work with that you, you have to modify it I mean it's not unimportant but but it's not the sole importance to explain uh, crime and so on so so you can see um, we talked about that before I, th I think the importance of of uh, being able to change we would you could say the stalemate now with all these theories and ideas that people just go to conferences and I, I think what you said also that to go and listen to people who talk about something you you don't naturally sort of come see as, as, as your interest is probably a, a very good idea. It should be encouraged much more. Uh, unfortunately, we looks to go the other way. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very no, much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it was very interesting because uh, I know there is something also in this connection that distance that creates also some sort of intimacy. I'm surprised by, by the effect yeah. that you can get. So it was really nice talking to you and a lot of ideas. I mean, we have discussed quite a few times, but never such um, in deep. Yeah. So I really appreciate it. And yeah, I suppose Levin too, but Levin is more more used to discuss with you. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, no, we Levin and I talk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but also, uh, but Levin, uh, well, I will see you in Malaga, I guess. Yeah, yeah, of course, both of, both of us. <laughs> So uh, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for coming. And um, let's keep in touch. Thank you for following Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast. This podcast is edited by Eduardo Coco from the University of Lausanne. Our theme song is Seagull's Night, Noche de Gaviotas, composed by Gustavo Cantero, arranged by Tato Germano, and played by Tato and Gustavo with the voices of Sasha Conte and Alejandro Turco Gujot. Your hosts are Levin Powells from Ghent University, Belgium, and Marcelo Aedi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Cheers and see you soon.